Listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820 brings you Foundations in Faith. Join Monsignor Frank Lane as he offers insights into the readings heard at Mass. And now, Foundations in Faith with Monsignor Frank Lane. This is Father Frank Lane, and we're continuing our program, Foundations in Faith. Today we're going to look at the Holy Gospel according to St. Luke, chapter 3, verses 10 through 18. And um, this is still the engagement of John the Baptist with the crowd. And, um, And so what we're going to find once again is the role that the Baptist plays in introducing the Christ. And it's a very significant role. And we've looked at the background of it before, actually. Um, the tremendously important background of the area of the, of the circumstances and the things that John is saying. And the gospel begins when all the people ask John, what must we do? And, uh, and he answered, if anyone has two tunics, he must share with the man who has none. And with the one, and the one with something to eat must do the same. And so he, ba- he basically, and we've seen that this is a characteristic of Luke's gospel, um, Luke basically puts kind of an ethical twist, a moral twist, onto the, uh, onto the whole revelation of the Messiah. And he sees it not just as kind of a, a popular following, and he sees it not just maybe as a political movement within Israel, but he sees it as an opportunity for those people who do encounter and do who see and come to believe in the uh, in the Messiah to understand that there's personal consequences to this, and that they are not their life is to not go unchanged in all of its dimensions simply because they have been simply because they have encountered the, the the final prophet simply because they have encountered the Messiah, and so here what he's saying is, you know, if you have two tunics, share one with the man who does not, and if you have something, he gives someone who doesn't. Then the tax collectors, too, who came for baptism. And these said, remember who the tax collectors are. They're the, they're the ones that are basically, in using our terminology, they're basically um, Jewish people who have been essentially kind of excommunicated from the community because they are working for the Roman Empire, and and, and they are collecting taxes. And it was not kind of any kind of, I don't know how objective our tax system actually is, but however much it compares, there is no comparison with, with what went on then. These were what we might call tax farmers instead of tax collectors. They would go out and collect the prescribed taxes, but their income really was what extra they could get out of the people. So they were, in some ways, kind of like the mafia. They were kind of like a protection agency. And uh, and not only that, but they were also extortionists, um, because while they say, you know, while you owe this much to to Caesar, um, actually things will go much better for your businesses. You'll have more protection for your businesses. You'll you know have less reported income, perhaps, for a little bit extra. And that's why when Jesus encounters Zacchaeus. Um, Zacchaeus says, I'll give back, you know, everything I did illegally, everything I did that, that uh, basically was, ex- was, was stealing from them. So the publicans, the tax collectors now, they want, they're coming for baptism. They're coming because they want to change their hearts. And, uh, and so they ask John, what, what do we do? Notice they call him master. And he said to them, exact no more than your rates. In other words, collect a fair amount of tax. 
Then some soldiers asked him in their turn, and what about us? What must we do? And he said to them, don't intimidate and don't, don't be extortionists and be content with your pay. Now, this was a perfect opportunity, you know, for John to launch into some kind of a, uh, some kind of a, a diatribe against Jews who, had wor- who worked in the military, who worked for the Roman military, as, as traitors, as, as those who were, you know, basically guilty of treason by supporting the oppressor. So none of that surfaces in the Gospels. There is never, um, as one of the commentators says, there was never a sociological interpretation of the Roman occupation in any of the gospel stories, in any of the gospel messages. And as a matter of fact, when we get into the story of the Passion and the Crucifixion, there's a great deal of cooperation between the Roman soldiers, um, some of whom were probably Jews and, uh, and were mercenaries, I suppose we could say, um, in, in, uh, in the pay of, of the empire. Then the gospel goes on. Once, once this has been established, you know, if you go through this, if you go through this conversion, if you go through this metanoia, if you go through this change of heart, then it's not just, you know, it's not just in your mind. It's not just a kind of an intellectual conversion or some kind of a, a sociological conversion. It has absolute and definite consequences in your life, and it has implications for your behavior and how you structure and how you live your life. And I think that's something that's a very important part of, uh, of, of what we have to contend with and what we have to deal with in, uh, in our acceptance of the faith. And we've, we've talked before that there's a radical difference between the reformers' view and understanding of this and our view and understanding of this. That... Uh, <clears throat> That for them, yeah, they're expected to do good things, but that's a consequence of Jesus saving them. And so it's simply kind of a gratuitous act. They were very, very careful during the Reformation itself to make sure as they restructured um, the poor relief and as they restructured all sorts of the, the welfare system, I suppose we might say, of especially the northern Hanseatic cities in Germany, um, that they removed any incentive to do good works for the sake of growing closer to the Lord, and, uh, and saw them only kind of as a one degree removed from the reality of their faith, so that um, it wasn't part of how they dealt with the Lord, and it wasn't part of how they came to know the Lord better. It was not a participation in, in the act of salvation. It was simply a consequence of something that Jesus had done to them, and it really did not have an integral part of their being at all except to show their gratitude to the Lord for having saved them. For us, it always was an active way for us to cooperate with the grace of redemption. And so it was an integral part of our faith life as we grew in faith and as we opened ourselves inside to, to the grace and the mystery of the Lord um, part of it, part of it was we enhanced that capacity to be receptive to God through the good works that through the good works that we were able to do, and so be, from being an integrated reality that helped us to grow and participate in faith, um, it became in the, in the Protestant Reformation simply a consequence of something that Jesus had done. It was expected, of course, that they would behave that way. 
but it was always removed one step away from them. It was always controlled not by the members of the church, but by the members of the the local community. Um, It became kind of a civil affair, which in all fairness in the 16th century, the civil society was the Christian society. But when that became no longer true as the centuries went on, it remained essentially then the, the, uh, the job of the civil society to care for the poor. In other words, to do the good works that, that um, John the Baptist is talking about here, sharing your goods with others and, uh, and doing your job well and honestly. So then, once they had, once that they had found this, this ethical component, and there is a, there's a great, of course, corollary to this in, in, the, in the letter of St. James, faith without works is dead, that you can come, you can go through your conversion all you want, you can come to a, to a conversion, you know, to Jesus Christ. Um, at the same time, if it doesn't change your life, if it doesn't have manifestations of it in your life, it's just simply kind of, kind of a, a psychological thing and uh, of not much consequence whatsoever to eternal life. So then the gospel says a feeling of expectancy had grown among the people who were beginning to think that John might be the Christ. So John declared before them all, I baptize you with water, but someone is coming, someone who is more powerful than I am, and I am not fit to undo the strap of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So... There was in the New Testament times, and, and not only does this, does this uh, particular um, verse, these particular verses in Luke address the issue, but John also addresses the issue. Um, he must, you know, in the famous line of John the Baptist, he must increase and I must decrease. There were, there was, uh, there were sects of those who uh, followed the Baptist. And some of them, we find that some of them did not even know about Jesus Christ, but they had become devout followers, devout followers of the of the Baptist, and uh, they were and and they existed independently, um, scattered around in the Middle East along with the Christians. The Christians wanted to make sure that the followers of the Baptist knew that John himself had not accepted that role among them. They wanted the the Baptist sects to know that um, that John was in fact a disciple of the Christ, and that he pointed that out to them over and over again. And so, while in fact this goes on, and John becomes this powerful witness, we have to realize and understand that that's where some people stopped in their process of conversion to Jesus Christ. And so, when they ask him then in Luke's Gospel if he might be the Christ. Then John declares them before them all, I'm baptizing you with water, but someone is coming, someone who's more powerful than I am, and I am not fit to undo the strap of his sandals. I'm not fit even to be his slave. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Fire in the Old Testament is a sign of divine presence, and uh, and Holy Spirit is not refined yet into the Trinitarian formulae that we're able to use, but it, is the, it, is, it certainly does imply the Spirit of God, and that is enforced by the fact that fire is added to it. It is the Spirit of God, and it brings a divine, a divine cleansing of sorts, a divine burning into the hearts and into the souls of, of those who are touched 
by the baptism of the Lord. And then John goes on to say his winnowing fan is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn in a fire that will never go out. So what we find is John gives a sense of the Messiah who is coming, who is going to kind of sweep the threshing floor and gather the wheat into his barn. In other words, he's going to call those whose hearts are open. He's going to bring those who are open to the grace of God and open to the proclamation of Jesus. He's going to bring those people into his kingdom. And those who resist him and those who do not. And this is where, you know, when, when, we, get to the, when we get to the point in, in the New Testament where the people began to reject him, the crowd that they assemble um, with Barabbas in it, um, <clears throat> is, uh, is an example of the ones whose chaff will burn in a fire that will never go out. That the bush, the, the, that the wheat has been shaken. And uh, those stalks which are faithful in order to who they truly are, who are strong and straight in the face of the Lord, they will be gathered into his barn. But those who oppose and those who harm and those who cause deep, deep and great difficulty, they will burn in a fire that will never go out. And this is not the divine fire. This is the fire of destruction. And so already, then, the Baptist is projecting that there is both heaven and hell. He is projecting that there is both reward and punishment as to how we, in fact, come to uh, relate in any way to the presence of Jesus among us and respond to the gifts that he brings, which we know to be ultimately his church and sacramental life. And then the Gospel goes on and says, as well as this, there were many other things he said to exhort the people and to announce the good news to them. So John the Baptist, this isn't all he said. And we know that in John's Gospel too, John says, there's much more that I could tell you, but I'm not going to tell you here. Here the Baptist is preaching for a longer time than a few lines in the Gospel. And, uh, and so he's exhorting the people. And to exhort them means he's calling them powerfully to kind of a conversion of life. And to go back once again and to look at what this means. <clears throat> it means, and, and this, is, this is a difficulty. This is a difficulty that Christianity suffers from and has suffered from for many centuries, many centuries. And that is, what does it mean to convert? What does it mean? And uh, it means that the heart changes, not just the mind. We have many examples of people who convert intellectually, but it doesn't seem to have much more impact in their lives, or they don't seem to be able to move beyond that intellectual conviction into a way of life that reflects um, kind of the natural sense of generosity that John talks about in the beginning of this gospel. There is, I think, that a heart of Catholicism, a heart of Christianity, as well as a mind of Christianity. And I, I think that it's important that both of those work in tandem during the process of a conversion. And each of us, even though we might be born Catholic, even though we might be baptized as infants, as we grow, <clears throat> these two components of our person change and evolve according to the faith that we hold and that we come to understand that uh, the charity is an, is an essential part 
of uh, of our life, of our faith life. Even as even as children, we were encouraged always um, to be generous with what little we might have. Um, to, uh, for instance, through the Holy Childhood Association, when I was a small child, you had the opportunity to reach out to children all over the world with some kind of uh, with some kind of of help and assistance for them to live a better material as well as spiritual life. And uh, I know that um, as, as grade school children, the, the grade school classes would go together and try and raise $5, which doesn't seem like much today. But, uh, but of course, then it was kind of a significant amount of money made up mainly of pennies and nickels. But, um, but anyway, so we were encouraged to reach out to children in Africa and children in India and children in China and so forth and to provide basic necessities of life for them through our own small sacrifices at home. The thought of not participating in that was just, it just didn't enter your mind. Well, of course you did that. Of course that's what we do. And, uh, and, the, and the same was true with, with any kind of local help or local charities that we were, that we were offered. It, it was also an opportunity to develop that dimension of your faith, that dimension of, um, of the life that you were going to live as a witness to Christ. So that while <clears throat> this becomes the essential component of our discipleship with the Lord, that there are many other things also um, that John exhorted the people and, and announced the good news to them. But we're left then to find out what that is when the Messiah actually breaks through in this story and he actually then begins to appear. So what can we do with all, with all of this? Here we have now the Baptist still in the desert, the Baptist still at the Jordan apparently. It seems to flow from what else Luke has said. He is still preaching. People are still coming out from the city. Um, he is still the one who is quoting Isaiah, the voice of one crying out in the desert, prepare a way for the Lord, make straight his paths. He is still, as the gospel tells us, um, the John, the son of Zechariah, and therefore the son also of Elizabeth, who Mary comes to visit while he is still in the womb. And it is in the womb he, as the end of the prophetic tradition, is the one then who joyfully recognizes the presence of the Messiah in the womb of the Virgin. He's a very important character in the New Testament, a very important character, and a very important link between the past and the present and the future. That it is the prophetic tradition in John the Baptist who acknowledges Jesus as Christ, the one who has come more powerful than I am, not, in, not fit to undo the strap of his sandals, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit with fire. He also will tell you many other things, and he will explain to you the integrity of conversion of heart. And that integrity of conversion of heart is an essential component of an authentic Christian faith. It is an essential component of, the, of an integration of behavior and heart in, uh, in a New Testament understanding of belief in Jesus Christ, reaffirmed, as we said, by St. James, who says, faith without works is dead. And it shows itself and manifests itself throughout the whole Acts of the Apostles, as the, as the Apostles themselves perform miracles of healing, um, as they share with others what they have, as the early Christian community shares with, with, with one another. Um, 
in, in their need and in their abundance and so forth. So we see that dimension and that example of Christianity as being very, very deeply rooted both in the Gospels and in the Acts of the Apostles. I think it's important for us to also realize that it is that dimension of Christianity which has given, in fact, um, structure and purpose and definition to what we call the religious life. That when the Christian community grew too large um, and became too urban in the earliest days of, of the faith, that to live the idyllic life, the, the, uh, the communal life that, that is outlined for us in the fourth chapter of Acts, and that, as a matter of fact, is hinted at here in John in the desert before it all even begins, that, uh, that what we find is that uh, that is treasured to such a degree that way of life is being kind of a call to all Christians that it becomes institutionalized in religious life within the church for many, many centuries after it is no longer a practical way to live in the secular world. Um, we have many intentional communities today, people who attempt still to live that way, but they can only do so basically in isolation and in small groups. Um, that it, it has to be radically modified <clears throat> in the complexity of our modern world, in the complexity of the modern economic, socio-political world in which we live. And so few are able to pull it off in the secular realm, but certainly religious life has been something that has been with us since the very first centuries of Christianity, beginning with the monastic movement <clears throat> of St. Anthony of the Desert, of St. Pacomius, and the, and the beginning of Cenobitic monasticism. And so that experience then of sharing everything in common, of living, you know, praying together, sharing everything together, um, living a common life for the sake of the kingdom of God, that's a very important piece of Catholicism. And while it certainly has gone through some rough times and, uh, and has uh, certainly been affected and impacted by the, uh, by the phenomenal wealth and the uh, of of our modern world, and uh, by a lack of sense of purpose and in that came about <clears throat> in many of the religious communities in the sixties and seventies um that in in all of that it became more of a secular endeavor than it did a religious endeavor um, but nevertheless <clears throat> it remains as as an essential part of the faith. And it is there that we see very clearly this idea of works themselves having an, an essential, critical part um, in the development of the Christian community and in the role of the conversion of the Christian community to follow the way of the Lord and to follow the, <clears throat> the commandments and the teachings of the Lord. So when we put this gospel together, <clears throat> We have some very interesting pieces. We still have John in the desert. We still have him now um, near Qumran. We still have him proclaiming the prophets. And we have him also then looking forwards, planted very firmly in the sands of the you know, southwest of Jericho, that, uh, <clears throat> and saying those things which are essential to the living of the Christian faith as he calls people to conversion. 
We see him clarifying the role of the Messiah and who the Messiah is, being very adamant that it is not himself. <clears throat> and so, um, and pointing to the one who will come. And we know that he does point very specifically to the one who will come. And he tells you the one who will come will bring a winnowing fan in his hand to clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn in a fire that will never go out. And so he's saying that there's eternal consequences to the decision to follow the Lord, and that to follow the Lord means to follow him in the full sense of the word, not just in our hearts, not just in our minds, but in our entire lives. And that as we, therefore, go through a life of participation in the salvation of our souls with the grace of the constantly flowing grace of the Lord, as we do that, as all of that becomes part of who we are, we are reminded that there are always alternatives, that we don't have to do this, but the consequences of not doing so are not pleasant and not something we'd have any great desire to pursue or to choose. And then he leaves the door, John then after this, leaves the door wide open to, um, to what the Lord is going to instruct them and what the apostolic community is going to instruct us in. And it's going to leave ample and plenty room for the church to develop and to grow, leaving firmly in place some of the very basic elements of the Christian life to be carried institutionally <clears throat> through the ages. And in being carried institutionally through the ages to be a constant reminder that our kingdom is the kingdom of Christ. <clears throat> and as he boldly tells Pilate, it is not, it is not a kingdom of this world that there is no amount of, worth, of earthly wealth, or success, or power that in any way, shape, or form in, entitles someone to, uh, to eternal salvation or entitles anyone to a special relationship with the Lord. But it is the living of the life, whether it is from a humble monk or nun, a lay brother in a, or a sister in a monastery, or whether it's, you know, the great and the powerful and the wealthy of the world. Whoever it is, before they stand before the Christ as simply who they are. We saw this, the Habsburgs developed this into a ritual at their burials in Vienna for centuries upon centuries, announcing the great titles of the, of the emperor when they would bring the emperor or the empress to be buried in the Capuchin church. There were a series of three questions, who, who are you? And the final answer was, I am so-and-so-and-so-and-so, a humble servant of the Lord. With that, the doors of the crypt were open, and the great and the powerful and the wealthy were allowed to enter and be buried among their families and those who had shared the thrones with them. They were powerful, strong people. They were wealthy people. But before the Lord, they were poor, humble servants of God. And that, in a sense, is what we remain as believing Christians. We are not the ones who hear, well, the Lord must appreciate all that I've done. Well, not necessarily. When you've done everything that you can do, you say, I'm a worthless servant. And so, in so doing, you stand before the throne of God in honesty and throw yourself upon his mercy, hoping that your response to his gift of faith is sufficient to carry you into eternal life. Foundations in Faith is a production of listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820. 
Archives of Foundations and Faith are available at stgabrielradio.com. Then he sank to